0: Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build you an entire campaign from scratch that you can run for your group tonight. The only thing it costs you is about 30 minutes of your time every Friday. Well, and whatever it costs you to pick up the books we're using, this campaign is a Deadlands classic game, so if you don't already own those books or know someone who does who trusts you enough to lend them to you, you'll either need to find a used game store that has them, or you can head over to the Pinnacle Entertainment Group website at peginc.com and purchase the PDFs. And if you get the PDFs, that means you can use them right now, so that's always an option. And I've been asked this more times than I can count. No, I'm not getting any money for Pinnacle from promoting their website. I just continue to do it because for me, it's a courtesy. I mean, it's their game after all, so why not send traffic their way, right? All right, with that said, let's get going on the show this week. As our regular listeners have figured out by now, this week's show is going to be a build-only show because my group didn't play last week. Oh, and I've been asked about that a few times, too. We play every other week for a multitude of reasons that goes back at least a decade to this point, And it's been various jobs, issues with childcare, and other things that it really doesn't need to be getting into right here. So even though pretty much everyone in the current incarnation of our game group, which, by the way, you can see pictures of over at the website, badgmproductions.net, could theoretically play every Saturday night, we've decided to just keep the schedule the way it's been for a long time, because we are slaves to tradition. Anyway, let's get into the real reason why you are here, and that's to keep building out our adventure. We began, as we always do, with a recap of what we did on last week's show. We got quite a bit done last week, but I'll try to condense it into a reasonable length of time. We picked up at the end of the battle as the group got their hands on Ezekiel Monroe and presumably killed him. With reinforcements on the way, the group had a limited amount of time to check for paperwork or other things they could use to figure out what their next step might be or for the identity of another member of the board. They found it, and I detailed that last week, so check out that episode if you haven't already. They also managed to find a hole in the floor of a closet with a ladder leading down. They wound their way through a tunnel, back up a ladder, and out of what looked like an outhouse, well within the trees to the north of the Plantation. One way or the other, they got back to town, realized they needed to vamoose and amscrade. Job done, it was back to Denver to pick up the rest of their money. But of course, Mr. Norwood had another folder and another payment for them if they were interested. Their target is Zebediah Thomas, also known as The Butcher. In other words, our long promised trip to Albuquerque is finally happening. Yay! However, the group also found out that Thomas has a daughter who works in Dodge City. So they decided to head there first to see what she could tell them about her father. And they were told about issues Thomas was having with the gang in Albuquerque, and they were able to get more money out of that deal if they agreed with it while they were still in the city. They made their way to Dodge, and through a bit of deception and role-playing by the daughter Alexis Miranda, they finally got a face-to-face with her. Well, <laughs> one member of the group did anyway. She gave them a location and a time for the entire group to meet her. And the next day, the group did meet her outside of town, at which point she laid out what she could do to help them. Again, that information is in last week's episode in detail, so check it out. She also gave them the name of the snake oil salesman, who happens to be a woman. By the way, that means they now have the names and locations of six of the seven board members. We ended the session with the group saying goodbye to Alexis and heading back into town to figure out their next move. So that's where we're going to pick up this session. By this point, the group has picked up a lot of information they didn't previously have in just a matter of days and they've got a lot to process. Now they're leaving the farm they met Alexis at, which means they've got about an hour ride back into Dodge. Now let's say for the record they spent about two hours with Alexis and they met her at noon. That means it'll be about three in the afternoon when they get back in town. Now, if they want to leave town now, they'll get about four hours of ride time in while it's still light, and they can camp and continue along on their way in the morning. Or they can stay in town another night, sleep in a comfortable bed, and eat food someone else prepares and get up at the crack of dawn and put a full day's ride in. Either way works fine and it really doesn't change what we do next. It's you and your group's call on it. It's about 470 miles from Dodge City to Albuquerque, which means that at 50 miles a day, if they don't run into any issues on the trail, to get there in about nine and a half days. Now, it's very probable that at least one of the characters in your group knows that, but if they don't, it's pretty easy information to get since the Santa Fe Trail starts in Dodge City and heads that way. Now you can handle encounters on the road really however you want for this. Since the Santa Fe Trail is a heavily used trail heading both ways, you could have the group meet up with a caravan that could use protection, which would give you an opportunity to put a few more dollars into the pockets of your group. However, we've been giving them a lot of cash recently, so unless they've just been spending their money on a ton of stuff, they really should be good from a cash angle for a little while. But if you want to give your group a couple of easy-to-explain encounters, then this is probably one of the best ideas to use. You could also just have them run into a group of marauders along the way. I'd use the gunslinger template for those, as it's a pretty good catch-all for bad guys in this game. I, however, am setting up two encounters during the trip on nights 4 and 8. So keep that in mind if you're gonna use my encounters as a part of your game, along with whatever else you do. On night four, whoever is on watch will have an absolute feeling of the heebie-jeebies. You know what that means. Have them make scrutinized checks with a target of 14, since it's dark, even if they got a campfire, it's dark. If they make it, they notice something out there shuffling towards them. A success would also give them time to wake up their companions before things go down. A failure is going to make them think it's just all in their heads. I mean, after all, they've been in a lot of fights recently, so maybe they're just feeling a little jumpy. Matter of fact, if one guy fails, wait to spring this until there's a change in the watch. Then drop it right in that guy's lap. No rolls. It's for walking dead, for which you can find the templates in the Marshall's Handbook. Give each of them a weapon, either a pistol, a rifle, or a shotgun. When the group defeats them, they each get a white chip and a point of grit. And if we're honest, they're probably going to need to change their shorts. We haven't done a lot of weird encounters to this point, so they're probably thinking we've forgotten about it. Oh, I can assure you, we have not. And then there's my poor group, because they know all of this, but they can't act on it because they know I'll bust them for metagaming. Probably. Side note real quick. For those not in the know, metagaming is when a player acts on knowledge that the player has, but the character does not. So if the players hear you give a description of something and one of the players remembers that a certain person has X or Y item on them or always does B or C thing, but there's no way for their character to know that. If they act on it, they're technically metagaming because if the character couldn't know it, then how could they act on it? There's a, there's a fine line to walk on the metagaming topic and it always causes controversy. If it doesn't bother you, then don't worry about it. Play on. If it does bother you, or if it bothers one or more of your players, then you need to take the time to talk about it, explain your position, let them explain theirs, and see if you can find some common ground. Then, stick to whatever you've agreed to. And that's on both sides, by the way. A GM can metagame just as much as the players can. I mean, we hear just about all of the conversations, yet we shouldn't act on what we hear because our NPCs and monsters and all the bad guys, they wouldn't necessarily know about that. And yes, I have made this mistake before, so please learn from my mistakes. All right, sidebar over, let's get back to game creation. There will be another encounter like the one we just had on night eight. Since the group had a run in on night four, they're gonna probably be a lot more on guard at night than they'd previously been, and they're probably bugging the snot out of you about it. You can let them make rolls every shift, every night if you want to. Heck, you can even play with them a bit if you want. Maybe have them chase down something that turns out to be a poor fellow walking down the trail at night because it's cooler than walking during the day. You know, something just completely vanilla. Anyway, night eight brings another batch of walking dead. This go around, there's a veteran walking dead leading a group of five. They won't all approach the group. A couple will be just inside rifle range and they'll fire on the group from distance. Again, arm them with whatever weapons you want so long as they're a pistol, a shotgun, or a rifle. I do need to emphasize that none of these walking dead in either of these encounters are the stupid, mindless, shuffling walking dead that we've come to know. And I wouldn't say love is the right word, but you get my point. These are smart, tactical walking dead, much, you know, both groups. So they can figure out what they need to do and try to do the tactical thing. The text also notes that sometimes they'll just act mindless so they can get close to a group before they try to munch down on a brain sandwich. Literally. (laughs) While it's still screaming. So don't be afraid to get tactical with them. They're just not throwaway meat shields. Same rewards as last time. One white chip, one grit point. Oh, and what are grit points used for? Grit points at a modifier of plus one for every point to a character's guts roll. So anytime that would come up, they can add the grit to the roll. Best part, they get to keep the grit afterwards. Yep, they're permanent. So we've gotten our group down the Santa Fe Trail and through a couple of encounters. I'd say it's time to get them into Albuquerque. We've only been teasing this for 10 weeks. By 1800 standards, Albuquerque is huge. Which makes a lot of sense, since people have been living in that general area for more than 300 years. Actually, probably closer to 400, but you get my point. Now, I used my usual blend of actual census data and math to come up with the population of the city, so here's where I do a math nerd breakdown. They, they are starting to grow on you, aren't they? Yeah. For some of you, it's grown like a fungus, I know. I'll be quick. The population of Albuquerque in 1870 was 91,874. By 1880, it was 110,585. I subtracted, got a difference of 18,711. Divide that by 10, that's uh, 1,871. Times six, that's 11,226. I added that to the 91,874 from 1870. And the 1876 population of Albuquerque in our game is 103,100. Like I said, huge. So again, we could take the time to sketch out the city in its entirety, but I don't think either of us really want to do that. If you really do, hey, go wild. Feel free to do that. And I know there's a lot of GMs out there who like to have their towns all sketched out in detail so they can either lay things out in miniature or as they can be very specific when they're giving details to their players about where they're going, where it is, and how long it takes to get there. I mean, maybe I really am as bad of a GM as I claim to be because unless I'm using minis, I don't get all that concerned with it. Theater of the mind for me means that my players will fill in the details with their own in their heads anyway. And quite frankly, it's probably going to be better than whatever I detail. So anyway, we're going to do a lot less prep for this city than we have in the past, and that's the reason why. Short answer, I'd rather spend more time writing up a quality adventure than building a city. But that's me. You do you. What I do know is that we need a hotel for the group to check into. Now, we've actually got two. If you'll remember, the Hotel Gato is the hotel one of their contact zones. So if they want to stay there, put it wherever you want it in town. If they don't care about where they stay, say maybe they want to stay close to the newspaper office or the home of Zebediah Thomas, then we can use the name Enchanted Forest. It'll be the hotel they're staying at if they just want a place to stay. Doesn't matter where in the city they stay, that's the name. If you want to jot down a couple of more names for hotels to give your group options, go wild my friend, go wild. Now my group tends to say they want a hotel in X session of town, usually close to whatever they're about to go scope out. So my method works well for their style of play. Next, we need a couple of names for restaurants. Now I could go with a Southwestern flair for my names and if that's your style and you're comfortable with it, please do so. However, I'm somewhat cautious about doing that on my own because I don't want to play into stereotypes or anything like that. Plus, my Spanish is atrocious so I have to use Google Translate to come up with the names and I'm always afraid I'm going to mess something up. That means I'm going with English names rather than the names that would actually probably be there. Probably not historically correct, but they'll work for this application. They'll need a couple of places to eat plus a saloon or two to drink in. For restaurants, we can go with the Family Grill. Angelina's Italiano, The Town Corner, and Butch's Southwest Barbecue. That should give us some variety. For drinking, don't forget that the Distilleria Rolling Sun is their other contact point. It's a distillery and bar, so that would work. You can give any other saloon type names you want for other places. There will be gambling establishments, but my group doesn't usually worry about the names of them. They just wanna find a place where they can make some money. But names like the Wagon Wheel, Anti-Up, and the Horseshoe Casino would work well. And yes, I know I stole one of those from Las Vegas. (laughs) But Las Vegas won't even exist for another 80 years in real life, so we can take a little creative license here. Now obviously, if it's in the player's guide and they want to buy it, there's a place here where they can probably get it. I know what the book says about prices, but price the stuff however you want. And there will be a number of clothing shops, tobacco shops, barbers, yada, 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 yada. Basically, whatever your group wants within reason should be available here. Again, it's up to you to decide what is and isn't reasonable and how much or how little it should cost. There will be a train station here because Dixie Rails runs a line from Santa Fe through Albuquerque to El Paso. We've talked about that on the show before, so keep that in mind as well. Of course, we also have the Albuquerque Daily News, which is the paper that Thomas owns, so it'll be around town, probably close to the major government buildings. We'll say Albuquerque has a mayor and a town council, and the police force consists of a chief, a couple of captains, a few lieutenants, some sergeants, and a whole lot of patrol officers. The no-guns policies we've seen in other cities also applies here, so keep that in mind as well. Finally, Zebatia Thomas's house will be in a nicer, quieter section of town, but it will also be a smaller lot, so he's got neighbors on either side, plus the nosy one who lives behind him. Other than what I've put out there, everything else is your creation, so have fun with it if you choose to. Getting back to the party, they're going to probably want to stable their horses, so let's put a couple of blacksmiths around town, and they've got livery stables to keep horses at. Once they've done that, they'll probably scope out the town a bit, so get colorful with your descriptions. Detail smells, sounds, and sights that are different from what they're used to. After all, the smells and sounds in the Southwest are gonna be different in many ways from those in Little Rock, and way different from Kansas, Denver, and Utah. I mean, think about the sounds and smells where you live. Compare them to places further away from there that you've been before. Sure, there are gonna be some things that are pretty much the same, but there are gonna be some that are very different, and those are what we wanna focus on here. They need to feel that they're in a place different than what they're used to. After they've checked out the town and some of the places they wanna go to, they're probably gonna wanna get hotel rooms, clean up a bit, and then, head out. Whichever hotel they choose will have plenty of rooms for them to each have their own room and they can have a bath drawn for a little bit extra. Once they're ready, let's lay out the three major locations they're probably going to check out. Alright, we're going to start with the Hotel Gatto and Maria Smith Sanchez. Getting a face to face with her won't be very difficult, I mean, especially if they're staying there. She's more of a worker than an owner anyway, so she's going to be the one at the desk when they would come in to get a room, or the one at the desk when they come in to ask questions she is of mexican descent and appears to be in her late 20s she appears to be rather plain because she wears clothing that's not really fancy or decorated and she doesn't wear makeup doesn't wear a lot of jewelry she will also be wearing her hair up either in a bun or some sort of a braid wrapped into a bun if you've done long hair up in the bun before you know what i'm talking about if not hey youtube it However, she's obviously very well educated. That's based on her speech and her language. She has very little accent, and her English is probably going to be better than most of the people in your group, let's be honest. If it comes up, she'll mention she uh, migrated to Albuquerque from Mexico when she was a kid. She and her parents both worked a number of different jobs to make ends meet, and she managed to get her education from books since her family needed her to work to make money. She got lucky and got hired on at a hotel in the city in her early teens, quickly proved her abilities to the point that she was running that hotel for the owner by her 16th birthday. By 20, she'd earned enough money to open her own place, and they are standing in that place today. The hotel gatto has, as the name might suggest, several house cats in the lobby. They are friendly, but if you've got a character that's allergic to them or has a fear of them, well, play on that because that's going to be an issue. The hotel is nicely decorated and it is immaculately clean. Maria does not know Thomas personally, but she dated one of the men who worked for him for about a year. Their relationship ended about six months ago when the man went, uh, he went suddenly missing. He returned about a month ago, but seems to be a totally different man. Uh, he seems more serious than he was before, and he appears to be a whole lot paleer than he used to be she also notes that uh, he doesn't seem to have anything to do with anybody anymore and the one time she tried to confront him about his departure he wouldn't let her get closer than a few feet she could swear something about him didn't smell right but she admits her own feelings and frustration about the abrupt end of the relationship could be influencing her decisions and feelings about the situation she notes that he used to live in a house on the same block as the newspaper office but she noticed shortly after he left that the house was being rented by a family so she has no no idea where to find him other than at the newspaper office. This man's name is uh, Jacob Walters and he's about six foot tall, was about 225 pounds when she knew him, though the last time she saw him he looked a lot thinner. His hair is black and his eyes were brown. Now again, those seem to have changed a bit since um, when she saw him this last time. She doesn't have any other information to provide, but she does ask that if they find out what's wrong with them, they let her know. If they're staying there, she offers to comp them a night's stay for the information. If not, she will ask for it as a courtesy. If they ask about the Shannon Gang, she doesn't have any information for them on that either. So next up, we'll go to Juan Marquez and the Distilleria Rolling Sun. It is a huge building, takes up about an entire block. Now granted, a lot of that, probably half of that at least, a little more, maybe 60%, is gonna be the distillery itself. But there's also a really nice bar, really nice size bar, as well as a decent sized patio that wraps around the front and the sides. If it's earlier in the day, the group will have no trouble getting a table. Late afternoon through most of the night though, they're gonna have issues. They'll probably have to take seats at the bar or just stand around because this place gets packed if they're willing to grease the palms of a server or one of the bartenders plus buy a couple of drinks getting them to see marquez isn't going to be too hard so long as they mind their manners mr marquez is about five feet tall but he is well built with neatly trimmed salt and pepper hair that is matched by his equally well trimmed mustache and beard He is well-dressed, but not flashy. He wears a vest and tie with his tailored pants. No jacket, but they do notice the gold watch chain on his vest. And his boots, which are very neat and clean, which is odd considering all the dust of the city, they seem to be made of a leather that they are not very familiar with. For the record, they are albino alligator skin, which is difficult to find and rather pricey. So I guess that would be the one flashy thing that he wears. He speaks in a moderately accented English, but... He's really easy to understand. He only knows Zebediah Thomas by reputation, and his reputation as a businessman is a good one in the city. Mr. Marquez pays for advertisements in the paper, and every other month or so, the paper gives him a couple of free ads because of the business he does with them, which he typically repays with a couple of bottles of his best tequila. And yes, he's willing to sell them a bottle or two for five bucks each. It's the Shannon Gang he's got info on. They are, in short, a general boil on the but of Albuquerque. He admits to paying them protection money, but mostly so that they'll leave his establishment alone. He doesn't need their muscles since he's got several well-built troubleshooters around the bar, and you guys noticed that as soon as they came in. But he's heard about what happens to businesses that don't pay, and he doesn't want his place burned to the ground while he sleeps. So he pays them $100 a week to keep his business standing. He reports his payments are usually picked up on Wednesday morning, and usually by the same two men, a tall, thin white guy and a shorter, fat white guy. He doesn't know their names, but he can recognize them on sight, because they dress the same way every time. For the record, your group will be in the bar on Tuesday night, regardless of when they got to town we're going to take creative license, okay? So the payment is due in the morning. He doesn't know how many other businesses are paying, but he personally knows of at least a dozen others paying and they pay between 50 and hundred bucks a week each. If they offer, he gladly agrees to allow them to be on the site in the morning, but he asks that they avoid too much trouble because of course he doesn't want issues with the gang. We'll get to that a little later on. Oh, and while I'm thinking about it, If you'd like to just make the pickup day be the morning after, if you're one of those that's got a calendar and you're keeping track of days and by your calendar they show up on Friday, fine, have the pickup be on Saturday. Just saying. Okay, back to Mr. Marquez. He has no idea where the gang has a base of operations, if they even have one. He's only dealt with the two guys that pick up the money and an older fellow who came by with them to suggest the payments. He does note that fellow had the makings of a boss of some type because the other two guys deferred to him in all things other than looking at Marquez with looks that suggested they could bust him up if they wanted to. That's all the info he has, though the group is welcome to stay as long as they want. The final place I believe that'll be on their list of places to go is the Albuquerque Daily News. It's a decent sized building, let's say about a third of the block or so, and three stories tall which is taller than any other building on this block or the surrounding blocks by a story. The presses are on the ground floor, the news desk and copy editors are on the second floor, and nobody is allowed on the third floor without permission, and permission is just not going to be given out. It should be noted that while most of the men on the second floor appear to be normal, there's about a half a dozen or so who just don't seem quite right. They're standing in pairs, guarding the three accesses to the third floor. Nobody will say anything about these men, and the group will notice that nobody gets very close to them either. They can talk to someone, but they don't give anything but the company line, which is a history of the paper, which is mostly negative until Thomas purchased it years ago. After that, it's all glowing reviews, yada, 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 go team. The group can press them, No pun intended, for more, but they don't have anything more to to say. They really don't. It's kind of like they do their jobs, but they don't interact with each other unless the job requires it on this here second floor. Maybe that's a thread we'll run into later. The guys running the presses are all normal looking, but they know even less than the guys on the second floor. And it does seem obvious that these guys associate with each other. Again, they don't know anything worth telling. And just between us, those different looking guys on the second floor... Yeah, the descriptions you'd give would uh, fit the description the group got about Jacob Walters. They didn't see him on that floor, but these guys have that same look they got in the Walters description. And of course, we both know what that means. Jacob Walters, as well as those six men on the second floor, are all dead men walking. Now, are they walking dead, or is there something else going on here? We'll get to that later, probably next week. Because... We're going to flesh out Zebediah Thomas's house a bit, since I don't know about your group, but I know mine will put the house on their must-see list. They did get the address from his daughter, and when they head over there, they note that there's no fence around the house, and there doesn't appear to be anyone inside, until they decide to enter the house. At that point, they're going to find there are six walking dead in there, apparently guarding the house from the inside, which would explain why Thomas doesn't have a problem with leaving his back door unlocked. Fight this out, then give the group a white chip and a grit point. Oh, and they're probably going to want to get out of there pretty quick, because there's a nosy neighbor who probably alerted the police, if the gunshots didn't. (laughs) Remember, these are walking dead, and the only way to kill them is headshots doing enough levels of damage to kill them, which means it might take several. So they'll need to bug out and try again another time if they've been in there more than two or three rounds, probably. But you can decide how many rounds is enough. If they decide to stay, they will be confronted by the police have it be a couple of beat cops. When they see what's going on in there, at first they'll want to arrest them for murder. After checking out the bodies though, they'll admit they're really not sure what's going on. So if the group can get a little bit of that smooth talking going, they will agree to look the other way, provided the group leaves the house immediately and they don't come back. If that happens, the cops will suggest that they'll take up what they found here with Mr. Thomas. Now you know me by now, so you probably know how that's going to end, but I'm going to tell you anyway, those beat cops are never going to be seen again. Make of that what you will. The group might think to wait outside the office for Thomas to walk home, but he doesn't leave the office the day on the day they're there, so they could stay outside all night long if they want, but they are never going to see him leave. Otherwise, they can do whatever else they want. They do know that the gang will be headed to the distillery in the morning for their payment, and if the group wants to get a lead on them, they're going to need to be there. So many plot threads, so little time. And speaking of time, we're out of time this week, so we're going to leave all of this to simmer. Next week, we'll pick up with the payoff and then check out the deal with Zebediah Thomas. Plus, we're going to have a game recap for my group's adventure this week. As we wrap up this week's show, I wanted to encourage anyone who hasn't already to check out our other podcast, Roleplaying History. Every week, we take a subject and do what I like to call a deep dive, where we go back as far as we can into the history, detail the high points in the low, and in the case of games and game systems, pop the hood and tell you how they run. That's role playing history, available wherever you get your podcasts or on the Bad GM Productions website, badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands classic materials we reference on this show are the trademarked, copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group and are used here for entertainment purposes only. The music we use on this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs for your next project. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. Twitter, we're at badgmp. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Email, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And as I've said a couple times on the show, online, badgmproductions.net. If you haven't checked out the website already, please head over there and do so. We've got links to both podcasts, plus some website exclusives that you can only see there. Again, that's badgmproductions.net. Before I sign off, I wanted to take a minute to wish my grandson a happy first birthday. The little guy had his first birthday on Tuesday, but I wanted to take a second to wish him a happy birthday publicly today. So um, happy birthday, Kane! Pop, pop loves you. You know that. All right. So next week we follow a criminal gang. Then we get involved in some walking dead weirdness, (laughs) but that's next week until then I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.